Starting with verse 11, I say then, uh, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through the fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? But, uh, or for if the first fruit is holy, the lump also is holy, and the root is holy, and so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, the way Paul describes us Gentiles, a wild olive tree, grafted in among them, uh, and you became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, but if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. Read that again. All of us need to remember this. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. The second part, many people don't consider, do they? On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, and if they do not continue, if, and if they do not continue in belief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off uh, out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have been disobedient, that, they, uh, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has become his counselor, or who has first been given to him, and it should be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. There were um, three preachers in a coffee shop, and they were discussing the time when life began, and they each gave their opinion of when life begins. The first preacher said, no, life begins when the child takes their first breath. The other one said, no, 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 
life begins when the child is conceived. And the last preacher said, no, 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 you are both wrong. Life begins when the last child leaves the house and the dog dies. Those of you that are empty nesters, you would know better. Now, a couple of solid answers and a rather self-centered one, uh, but the question still remains, when does life really begin? Now, if you're talking about biological life, the first two were on the right track. But true life, eternal life, begins with the deliverance of sin and death, eternal life. Jesus, we know, is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Gentiles, which is almost all of us here, although some of you may be Jewish and don't even know it, that seems to be something that uh, people find out sometimes, but nevertheless, the majority of the world is Gentile by a massive number, and most of you here are, but Gentiles need deliverance whether they know it or not, correct? It doesn't matter if you grow up Hindu or atheist or hedonistic or whatever it is, Gentiles need deliverance whether they know it or not. And Israel needs their deliverer to breathe life into them, give eternal life, and set them free. Paul quotes um, from Isaiah 59 in this chapter. He says, the deliverer will come out of Zion. Who will come out of Zion? The deliverer. Now, if you go back to Isaiah, it actually says redeemer there, but Uh, They're very interchangeable. Deliverer is the word that Paul uses here. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, the household of Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Again, you have physical life, you have spiritual life. You have spiritual life for an individual, but also God wants to redeem an entire group of people to deliver Israel his people. But because we can't see things, you and I can't see things, and Paul's addressing a lot of what would be in people's minds conundrums. Why why does God do it this way? Why does he allow all this rejection of him? Why does it seem like Israel will never succeed? Matter of fact, they were scattered and dispersed all across the nations, right? They fell away from the Lord. They didn't just fall away. They ran away from the Lord, right? Carried off into captivity to Persia, to Babylon, to Assyria, and then dispersed to the uttermost as a nation that was completely, in many ways, um, well, not forgotten by Jewish people as they continued to keep their heritage around the world, but certainly as a nation, uh, completely disintegrated. But we see that uh, through all these things, only God's omniscient and omnipresent understanding can really explain what's happening, what God is doing in the world. Paul gives some of the, uh, he gives some of the um, background and understanding, but even still, nobody can explain everything. The scriptures tell us uh, that God's plan has not been hindered, though it looks like it's being hindered. Don't you, when you watch the news, it looks like God's being hindered? You would think that our leaders are getting away with it. You would think that Russia's leaders are getting away with it. 
You would think that China's uh, communist regime, which hates the Bible, is getting away with it. Or Iran, the Middle East. But nobody is really getting away. And God is not being hindered. All of the things that we see, God says all these things, they kind of will run in all directions, then God will still he'll fold them back up, and everything will begin to fall into place exactly the way he designs it. Everything that Satan means for evil, because he wants to take as many to hell, he would love to destroy Israel forever as a nation. He would love to see America fall off the cliff. He would love to see the whole world go to hell, literally, right? And yet, everything that Satan means for evil, God ultimately will turn for good. And Paul is saying, look, who has known the mind of the Lord? Can anyone understand exactly what God is doing? No. But Paul says, trust, these things will come to pass. He will deliver Israel. He will uh, deliver his people. He will usher in a great harvest of both Gentiles and Jew, bringing them all together. But as we've been studying in chapters 9 through 11, we're looking specifically at what God's perfect plan is for Israel. And if you're taking notes tonight, I've titled our time in God's Word, The Deliverance of Israel, uh, our, our final section, this mini-series, if you will, in the middle of Romans, or the not directly middle, but uh, latter middle, if you will, of Romans. And uh, if you're taking notes, we've, I've divided the text into three sections tonight, provoked, partakers, and pardoned. Provoked, partakers, and pardoned. Now, Israel uh, as a nation and the Jewish lineage, uh, the vast majority of those that are Jewish around the world have stumbled over the cross, right? The rock of offense. The vast majority of Jewish people on the earth are not born-again believers. But then again, the vast majority of Gentiles are not born again, right? So that's not that uh, distinctly different in either case. Uh, What is distinctly different is uh, Israel, as Paul has, has kind of gone through a number of times here in this epistle, Israel was given, first and foremost, before anyone else, Israel was given all of the law, all of the prophets, the priesthood, the tabernacle, everything that foreshadowed Jesus and his ministry, that he would be prophet, priest, provider, all of these things. He'd be the shepherd. All of these things Uh, that we see the foreshadowings in the life of whether it be a Joseph or a Moses, right, or Elijah. All of the uh, foreshadowings in the Old Testament, but certainly more than that, they were given the promise of the Redeemer, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be of the household of David. Israel was given all the things to the point where uh, an Anna or a Simeon, they could be waiting for the Messiah and know that he was coming. But most of Israel was not waiting for him to come. And when he did come, and even when he revealed himself, I mean, the things that Jesus did, he didn't just raise Lazarus from the dead, he raised others from the dead too, right? We understand that 
He raised people from the dead. He healed. He did all these things. And yet, through all that was seen, Israel, through unbelief, as Paul talks here, speaks of, through unbelief, Israel didn't receive their Messiah. Collectively. But obviously some did, right? Mary did. Martha did, right? James and John did. Peter running the tomb. Some did, but collectively the nation of Israel had stumbled over the cross. But what Paul says here, have they stumbled that they should fall, he's speaking of a fatal fall. The kind that, you know, we've all fallen in life, right? But some people have fallen and actually have died from a fall. It's one thing to fall and mess up your knee, hurt your rib cage, right? Hurt your pride. If you do it in front of people, that, that'll, that'll happen, right? It's one thing to fall like that and be embarrassed and even a little bit sore, but it's another thing to fall like off the side. Of, you know, I, I just read recently uh, one of the football games, this happened like three or four times this year, a, a fan fell off the railing to their death. And if you fall from the upper deck of a stadium, you're probably not walking away from that, Right? That's a fatal fall. But Israel, Paul said, though they've fallen, uh, it's not a fatal fall that they will never be nursed back to health, brought back to life. But through their fall, to provoke to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So they have fallen, they have stumbled, but it's not fatal as it relates to God's purposes. You know, if you have two runners running side by side on a track... And then all of a sudden, one gets a good healthy lead. And let's say the good healthy lead was the Jewish people, right? They had the bit, God gave them everything. Here's the law, here's the commandments, here's the promised land, Joshua, I'll give you Canaan, all of these things. They take a big healthy lead. And then they stumble. The other runner is going to run past them, right? And then if the other runner gets up, now they're looking. They were behind. One time they were side by side. Then all of a sudden Israel's out in front. Israel stumbles. The other runner, Gentiles, move past. The Gentiles are out in front. And then that's just my way of internalizing a little bit. But you can kind of see what's taking place. But God leaving these things out. The race is far from over, isn't it? race isn't over yet. Paul's like, God's seen the whole thing. We're only looking at a little slice in time. We can only see what we can see. As we looked at last week, the Lord has always, always reserved for himself a remnant, a remnant from Abraham for himself, uh, both before the coming of Christ and after the coming of Christ. So there's been a remnant before and a remnant after. There's always been a remnant. You and I are part of the remnant of Christ. Now, this small born-again Jewish remnant that still remains and was, was certainly there when in Paul's day, uh, he certainly brought uh, quite a few Jewish uh, people to the Lord. Uh, but there was a small remnant of Jewish believers then, of which Paul and Peter and the apostles were part of. Um, as it began to give rise, particularly in Gentile cities, the, the Jewish population, for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, where Paul would come and the apostles would come, would say, we don't want this. 
We don't, we don't want this gospel. We've heard about you guys from Jerusalem. We've heard you're going out there uh, trying to sabotage the law, trying to uh, turn, um, the, you know, turn the nation of Israel upside down. And so we don't want this. And so Paul and the apostles would often, as Paul said, you know, here I am, an apostle of the Gentiles, they would turn to the Gentiles where it would be received in much greater numbers. Not that it wasn't received at all, but again, Jewish reception, low, Gentile reception, not off the charts, but much higher, right? So it wasn't like everyone in, uh, everyone even in the Gentile world was coming to Christ, but more were coming to the Lord. And so Paul was given this ministry uh, to the Gentiles. And in these Gentile cities in the Mediterranean, typically all the Mediterranean larger cities uh, would have a resident Jewish community. Uh, they'd have a synagogue that was built there by the resident Jewish community, just like uh, there's Jewish synagogues uh, here in Richmond and around the country. Uh, but the acceptance of Jesus, Jesus should have been accepted, right? Jesus was Jewish, descendant of David, right? The Messiah of Israel saved and healed, but he wasn't. It caused, instead of receiving Christ, in most cases, it caused anger, but also investigation, right? Some, it's just like when you witness to somebody, some people you witness to will be angry, but some will investigate. How many testimonies? We watched those uh, uh, Billy Graham testimonies, the video ones, those that you watched them, and just like, you know, the one girl who just got a book about Christian and began reading it. So you get investigating it. So what would make some people angry and say, Paul, it will stone you, which happened to him. Others would investigate and say, maybe, maybe just maybe there's something to all this. And even some of the Gentile believers would in fact provoke some of the Jewish community that at first said, we're not interested. Paul said, okay. Then he gets a big crowd of Gentiles who are listening. Some of the Jewish people are like, they got a big crowd over there. Yeah, they're 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 wacko. They 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 don't know they don't know the they don't know the law like we do. But it, it looks like it looks like that weirdo Paul's having an effect on them. Because if I'm not if I'm not missing this, some of these people that Paul has won that are not Jewish used to be really mean. Right? Or they used to be really immoral. And remember, the Jewish community, uh, even, though, even though the Jewish community was not saved, in many cases, they were a much, moral, much more moral community. Right? This was the same way it was in Europe all the way up until when Adolf Hitler began his assault uh, on Europe and, and, and Jew, uh, Jews uh, specifically. But many of the Jewish communities, again, honored marriage, Right? They uh, did not participate in some of the just completely um, abominable things that some of the Gentiles were. They really did follow the teachings of the Old Testament and the synagogue, though they did it believing that that was going to get them to heaven, and they also did it with legalism and look how, look how. Uh, standing upright, standing we are, surely God loves us, not you wicked Gentiles, you're not uncircumcised people, all that kind of stuff. And 
That wasn't always. I'm saying a lot of times what people think is not what they say, right? They might have worked well with them in the community, but the, the thought was, we're holy, you're not. But when they would see that Paul and the other apostles that would come with them, whether Barnabas or Silas or whoever, when they would see that many of these Gentiles radically changed, that would have a head-scratching moment, like, I've known these neighbors forever. They're the first ones at the party. They're the ones that are, again, they curse all the time. All of a sudden, their language changed. And so these things could provoke and did provoke and still do provoke. Now, Paul is saying, and he actually says it twice here, that if the worst possible response, if the worst possible response of the Jewish people is actually resulting in more Gentiles being saved, right? Because they go to a city, we're going to share, we're going to, Paul will go straight to a synagogue, okay, gets up, reads, they say, thanks for reading, what do you got to say? Tell us the gospel, uh, time out, get out of here. It didn't always go that way, but that was not unusual. And so then he would say, well, let's turn our attention to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, we don't know who Jesus is. We know what the Jewish synagogue is all about. Can you explain to us where the connection is? Paul said, glad you asked. The Jewish synagogue is remembering, and he would tell them about the Old Testament. And that told about Jesus coming. And they're like, this is really good. So all of our, all of our thousands of gods aren't going to help us? Not at all. Many of them get saved. And so Paul's saying, if the Jewish response, worst possible response, leads to many Gentiles getting saved, praise the Lord. Because God loves Jew and Gentile alike. And so the Lord would use even that negative, rebellious response. Now he says if the worst possible response is many Gentiles hearing and believing, he says, wait until... How much more, verse 12, how much more the fullness when God actually, when the Jewish response is no longer, we're not interested, there will come a time when the 144,000 are sent out and hopefully even a harvest of that even prior when many, many thousands, even millions of Jewish people will look and say Jesus really is the Messiah. And he's like, how much more when that time comes how much more glorious it will be than even God's producing great fruit. It would be, like um, be like you getting hardly any rain, right? And you plant a fruit tree, and you hardly get any rain, and you're still getting a, a pretty decent amount. You're getting, uh, maybe you get 50 apples, apple season. But then the rain, God sends rain, which is way more effective than irrigation system, and it proliferates to 500 apples. If the fruit is good when there's hardly any rain, how much more when God sends all of it? And that's what Paul is saying. Uh, these things, yes, they, uh, yes, Israel has said, no, we're not interested, but at the same time, it's provoking God still having breadcrumbs of one little Jewish family, another one, another one, another one coming to know the Lord. Now, we should not forget in many instances... Uh, many instances, it's, it's mentioned, if you can write these down, Acts chapter 13, verse 46, uh, Acts 18, verses 5 through 6, Acts 28, verses 25 through 28. These were specific instances where you see 
the gospel is preached, and specifically, Paul would say, all right, we turn ourselves now to the Gentiles. Just flat out said it. I said, you reject it, we turn to the Gentiles. So the Lord, now did God know this was going to take place? Of course he did. He was going to use this to reach even more people, that more nations would be reached, that the gospel would go uh, to the uttermost. Now, these Jewish communities, as they're provoked by changed lives and the blessings of God that would come upon these Gentiles, and the, uh, again, very clear testimony and evidence that these lives have been transformed and and how clear that is. Um, The question for us is, do we have something that provokes? Is there enough in our life to provoke? Um, Leon Morris, he was a Bible commentator, he had this to say. He said, "Is it it is a matter of profound regret that just as Israel refused to accept this salvation when it was offered to them, so the Gentiles have all too often refused to make Israel envious. Isn't that true? I'll read it again. It is a profound regret that just as Israel refused to accept this salvation when it was offered to them, so the Gentiles have all too often refused to make Israel envious. Matter of fact, some have even uh, gone on and had hatred and prejudice and even persecution towards Jewish people. Now, how in the world any Christian would treat anybody like that doesn't make any sense. The Bible doesn't in any way. We would love our enemies. But yet, he says Christians, I love this, he says Christians should not take this passage calmly. Not take it calmly. Understand that it should be a wake-up call for us to be living in such a way that the world, not just Jewish people, Gentiles too, both would be envious that all men would see your good works and glorify God. That people would say, truly, these are the disciples of Jesus Christ, that they love one another. That's so lacking in the body of Christ. There's so much lack of love, but yet... That is what the Lord has asked us to be. Lights that actually draw the attention, certainly provoking those that are Jewish, but also those that are Gentile as well. Now let's look at this partaker, starting in verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. Now there is some, uh, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. There's some disagreement among different Bible scholars. Who is the first fruit that's been being talked about here? I believe um, there's a principle of duality here, uh, but I believe that the greatest application is the first fruits that are being spoken of here are the first Jewish believers, such as the apostles and the early church, that was predominantly Jewish. Right? So you have you know, the, the 12 and the 70, and you have this small group of believers by the time Jesus ascends, and then you have... Uh, Pentecost and the predominant uh, uh, there would have been Jewish uh, converts as well. So the first fruits, the first fruits are, are without question inclusive of, but the scripture doesn't tell us exactly, God doesn't tell us here exactly who he's speaking of with the first fruits, but uh, I, I don't think there's any question that it's inclusive of the early Jewish believers 
they, them being the first fruits. But I also believe, and this is just some, some believe that the first fruits are actually speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Speaking of them being the first fruits, because the fathers are actually mentioned in the chapter as well. So the fathers are mentioned, and that, that the fathers would be the first fruit. I believe it's both. I believe it's speaking of the fathers as well as the early church, and that both are the first fruits. But again, probably the most direct um, application would be the early uh, Jewish believers right after Jesus ascended. Now, the first fruits. Now, we know Paul's saying that the first fruits are Jewish. Because you and I, Gentile, we're grafted in, so we're not the first fruits. For certain, uh, the first fruits is either or both the patriarchs or the early church, the, Jewish, the early Jewish believers. But in both cases, you're talking about that the olive tree or the first fruits that are uh, all synonyms of each other, the first fruits and the olive tree, these being Jewish, that the foundation, the first, is that God first brings into his redemptive work his chosen people called Abraham out of Ur and establishes and then, of course, he sends his own son, being the Jewish Messiah. But it goes on and tells us that the branches, some of the branches were broken off. Uh, Israel rebelled. Many of the branches were broken off, dispersed among the nations. Uh, obviously, even the day that Jesus is, is crucified, the crowd doesn't say, we love you. They say, give us Barabbas. Many branches that didn't want to be in the tree. Now, they didn't think that. They thought they were doing God's work, when in fact they were being broken branches. They were rejecting, instead of being in the tree of life, they're snapping themselves out by not receiving the truth. Jesus came and says, I am the truth. They said, no, you're not. Those branches snapped off. Many of them cast in like twigs, right? A tree that doesn't bear fruit, cast into the fire. Many branches broken off. And then God begins to save Gentiles and begins stuffing, if you were. Paul's giving it an out, just kind of an um, illustration of God taking wild branches, that being Gentile, and stuffing them into the tree and grafting it, and they grow in. Goes on to say, Verse 20, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you now stand in faith, but don't be haughty. And, and we know that many Christians have become almost, ant, not almost, I don't even think, uh, I, I, I don't know how to, when I hear of Christians being anti-Semitic, I wonder if they're Christians at all, right? Because again, if we're really in Christ, we love all people. Doesn't mean that we doesn't mean that we're able to connect with all people. Doesn't mean that we understand all people. Doesn't mean that uh, we never have issues that that uh, people rub us the wrong way. That happens. That's part of being human. But we overcome those things because of the blood of Christ, and we still are able to love in spite of our feelings. But again, someone that is complete. I'm anti-Semitic. I don't know that you have ever been born again. If you can really be true, I don't like these 
group of people over here based on color or based on ethnicity or anything. It doesn't, it doesn't compute with a heart that's been transformed by the Lord. But nevertheless, Paul said even if you're not anti-Semitic, that's not what he's saying here. That's kind of the extreme, right? Anti-Semitic would be the extreme. But you can become prideful. Oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't grow up in synagogue and I heard the gospel once and got saved. It's taken you so long, right? Paul's like, don't become haughty. Don't ever stick out your chest because what God has done for you. You always are thankful for it and leave it at that. There's no, there's no I did it, I, well, I must have a softer heart than you, or uh, I just eat more pliable than you are, or I just uh, wiser. No, it's always by His grace. God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. We came to Christ being humble. We must stay humble in Christ. Right? We had to kneel at the cross to get saved, and we need to stay kneeling the rest of our life, staying humble. Um, Gentiles, we should have the attitude, truly have the attitude, that we don't deserve to be grafted into the olive tree. You agree with me? That should be real. Our humble response to God is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve to be grafted in the olive tree, but thank you for doing it anyway. To the Jewish person, their response would, should be, Lord, we don't deserve to be regrafted, brought back in after we were broken off, but thank you for regrafting us in, right? We were a part of the original tree, we snapped ourselves off, and you're willing to bring us back in. Thank you for, re, for second chances. And so both Jew and Gentile would both have a humble response, and neither one would look at the other and say, I'm better than you. That's what Paul's getting at. He's saying that you are partakers. Partakers are equal. We're both partaking in something. You know, I'm married. Me and I, we're partakers in marriage. It's an equal proposition. We're both partaking in what marriage can be through Christ. We're equal partakers. Both Jew and Gentiles were married to Jesus Christ. We are equal partakers as the bride. Amen? doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. We're equal partakers. The Lord will ensure, not that he, I, I almost put in my notes, the Lord desires, but it's, it's more than that. The Lord doesn't desire. The Lord will ensure that all of his children are humble. Do you believe that? He's not asking you and I. He will ensure that we become humble. If you're not humble today and you're saved, it's coming. Well, I don't know how that's going to happen. Do it now. Because remember we talked about falling and, and making a fool of yourself and being really embarrassed? He will humble us if we refuse to be humble. But isn't it great that he allows us to just say, yes, Lord, I will be humble? without having to make an utter fool of ourselves? He will ensure that all of his children are humble and that they are grateful for what they have received from Christ. Not everybody is. There are believers that I know are saved and they're not humble yet. They will be. If they're really the Lord, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. I've never been chastened. It's either coming or you need to really go back to when you came to Christ, right? 
Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He chastens me fast, and I'm glad. I get chastened in my mind on a regular basis. I get chastened by the Lord just saying, what are you doing? I didn't tell you to fight that battle. I fight this, right? I didn't tell you to worry about that. Why are you wasting your time on this? It, the Lord, and it, it's loving. He's a loving Father. We're partakers together, but we cannot be haughty. We cannot look at Israel and say, how could you have had, how could you have had all this information and said, I would have, if I'd have been in Jerusalem, I wouldn't have said, give me Barabbas. And we would have, wouldn't we? We would have been in the same boat. One other thing that uh, Leon Morris said, he said, when an olive tree had lost its vigor, it seems that one of the remedies in antiquity was to cut away the failing branches and to graft in wild shoots. The result was said to be it invigorated a failing tree. Isn't that amazing? Paul, how did Paul know that? Was he a botanist? Did he, but, because originally, did you know that uh, when this, when, uh, this fact that they used to take wild branches and graft them in. I didn't even know you could do that. But uh, this practice at, at one time wasn't real well known. So a lot of, a lot of uh, non-believing scholars kind of scoffed at this illustration. What a ridiculous illustration. And then they find out later, they actually did that. In antiquity, they would do this. But uh, at the end of the day, Jews and Gentiles were to have the same heart and attitude. We are partakers of something that God first gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, revealed in his son Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 3 says, let nothing, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each other, let each esteem others better than himself. You know, you and I will have a harmonious, unified relationship in our home with other believers when we really start believing that everyone else is better than us. Not better than us like, well, they're, they're more important to God. No, they're more important. Their happiness, their needs, let them eat first. I give preference to the other person. That's not our nat- that is not our natural man. Our natural man is everyone else is beneath us. But when we live this way and we look and say, no, I care more about them than I care about myself. You'll pray for Israel more when you think that way. As a partaker already, you'll say, Lord, I do care that they also, that the veil is taken off their eyes, that they're not blinded anymore. We'll pray for both Jew and Gentile differently when we consider others, and certainly inside the body of Christ as well. Let's look at this last uh, section as we come to a close this evening, pardoned. Thank the Lord uh, that even though we see a glorious work today, all of you are part of a glorious work. Again, I, I didn't get saved till I was 26, although I had asked Jesus into my heart like half a dozen times prior to that. But I believe my conversion, you know the difference, right? Conversion. Paul was converted. Uh, my conversion, I believe, was at the age of 26. And when you were saved, 
Uh, some people don't even know an exact time. They're like, I, I can't even, know. I just know that my life transformed. Some people don't have an exact date. But when they were converted, our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And even though God has done this work thousands and thousands, even millions of times, a much greater, much greater redemptive work is yet to come. And through tragedy, through the tribulation period, a great harvest of souls will be saved. Uh, God will actually use the time of Jacob's trouble to bring many Gentiles and many Jews to faith in Christ. It's sad that it takes uh, that God has to, he's both good and he's what? Severe. But he's so good that he's severe. Does that make sense? He's so good that he knows that some people will never receive the call unless the volume is turned way up. Right? And when he does get severe with the world, he brings salvation. Every time he's brought judgment, he's also brought salvation. All the way back to the flood, you see that? When God brings judgment. One of the things that the Holy Spirit, uh, me and my wife were talking about uh, today, when I look at um, so much that's lacking in the celebrity pastors around the world today, and that's what I call a lot of them, celebrity pastors. Um, The Holy Spirit was going to do three primary things. He was going to judge the world of sin, righteousness, and what was last? Judgment to come. What's lacking from the celebrity pastors? Sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Everything but. All kinds of other nonsense. Now, some of it's not nonsense. Some of it's actually the Bible. It's right to preach the whole counsel of God. It's right to preach that God wants us as believers to have peace and patience, right? And kindness for one another. But for the unsaved world, if that's all you talk about, then they can find many other self-help books that have the same message. They're just not associated with Scripture verses. But those other books don't talk about sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. But we know that here, Paul warns a number of times, even that says, verse 21, for God did not spare the national brands, he may not spare you either. Paul, that's a little over the top. He may not spare you either? He goes on, and they continued unbelief, but, but God is able to graft them back in again. He'll use the severity. He who tears will bind back up. Everything that God is doing, allowing, sometimes when the world gets totally out of control and there's floods in Colorado, fires in Colorado, get out of Colorado. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all, you know, murders in Syria, murders in Egypt, all the world's becoming more chaotic. This should cause some people to say, what if I'm next? What if the next chaotic situation is me in a D.C. office, not expecting someone to come in with a gun? What if I'm at the Boston Marathon next? What it should cause people to say that the world is a really dangerous place. Maybe God's word really is true. And so God will use the severity of all the things that are taking place. Verse 25, don't be ignorant of the mystery. 
Lest you be wise, but the blindness in part has happened. The world is blind. There's a great blindness in Israel specifically. I was in Israel. And you see so many people that have a lot of understanding of their Jewish faith, but not an understanding of the Jewish Messiah. There's a blindness there. They want the world's problems to go away, but they're not looking to Christ. They want peace and prosperity. They want these things, but they're not looking to Christ. But eventually, the heat will get turned up so hot that everyone in Israel will say, maybe, just maybe, Jesus really is Yeshua, the Messiah. Because right now, even though Israel has times of periodic pressure for the most part, I felt safer in Israel than I did in the United States. But eventually that won't be the case. Eventually the blindness will be taken away, but not before severity. God is both good and severe. There will be more severity. But verse 26, all, will, all Israel will be saved. Now I don't know, and I don't think anyone truly knows the full meaning of that statement. All Israel will be saved. Now what I do believe is clear that Paul said not all Israel is Israel. He's already said that in Romans. So we understand that really, who is God saving? Well, he's going to save all those that were ordained before the foundation of the earth. Those, the, the foreknowledge of God, all of the household of Israel, who that is, God knows. All will have the opportunity, and yet God has chosen them, and they've chosen God. And only the Lord knows uh, how all that comes together. But all of Israel, whatever Israel, God has a plan for what all Israel is. All of the household of Israel. That will all be brought into the bride of Christ. The deliverer will come out of Zion. We know that uh, Jesus, when he comes and sets up his kingdom, he's going to return all. Matter of fact, the temple will be rebuilt all the sacrifices will come back. We don't have time to get into what all that means, but for a thousand years, the ungodliness will cease. There will be no... Uh, in Tel Aviv, you have people that are Jewish that are also Hindu and worship a million gods. That won't happen under the millennium reign of Christ, will it? Everyone will bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. But more than that, uh, God is going to uh, bring through the time of Jacob's trouble, through the latter days, Matthew chapter 24, uh, book of Revelation, he's going to bring many, many uh, of the household of Israel to, set, to saving faith, and they actually will not just worship because it's law, the law will be written on their hearts, just as it is with you and I. Um, but how God is doing all these things, as, as Paul says in uh, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. You know, it, we think that the Bible should just be very linear. God speaks, everyone accepts, boom. But that's not how it happens, is it? God speaks, some receive, some reject. They get violently angry at those who did receive. You know, we see that you know, Christians are being beheaded in Syria. You know, all these kind of things you would think that, God, did, why should Pastor Saeed be in prison? Why? doesn't seem to make... Can you answer all those questions? I can't. I have some partial understanding, but I don't have a full understanding. And Paul says, no one does. Who 
How unsearchable, verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You know, I've heard some people that teach the Bible and they, they'll act like they have an, that there's a 100% answer for every single thing. Paul said, no, that's not. There's, some of God's ways are past finding out who has known the mind of the Lord. Now, we understand what he's doing, but we don't understand all the ways he does it. Job says he does great things. Job 9.10, past finding out, yes, wonders without number. Paul says in the 33rd verse, his judgments past finding out. Isaiah in 55.9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, I may understand a tiny fraction of what I see in the universe. I love to look at the Hubble telescope pictures and the NASA pictures. I may understand a tiny fraction of what's taking place in the universe and its complexity and its enormity. It's staggering. But I may only understand a tiny fraction of what I see, but what I do understand, I know definitively displays the order of God, the design of God, and it makes any human design look ridiculously simple. Right? That's what I understand. What Paul is saying is like, look, here's the deal. Did God give the promises to Israel first? Yes. Did they hold on to them as a collective group? No. A remnant did, but the vast majority cashed in their chips and said, we don't want this inheritance. So the inheritance went over the Gentiles. The Gentiles said, thanks, we'll take it. And then God says, but you're not getting all of it. I'm actually giving the inheritance back. I'm not taking it away from you. You're going to keep the inheritance, and I'm going to give the same inheritance back to them. Why does it go down like that? I don't know. Why did I wait till I was 26 to get saved? I'd heard many times before, and I kept choosing the world, the world, the world, the world, the world. Why did you not immediately receive, right? All these things glorify the grace of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, and ultimately that he is the one that will pardon. Verse 36 sums it up for of him and through him and to him. What a great verse, huh? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. The things you understand, the things you don't understand, the things that are very clear, the things that are severe, the things that are good, all give glory to God. That moon you're going to see when you go outside, all of it. The heavens declare His glory, the Bible says, right? And all of creation will stand in awe at this final piece when God pardons, brings us into heaven, And the angels will even say, you're letting all these people in? All of them. All those that have been redeemed. Both Gentile and Jewish believer together. Let's close in prayer.